Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series, book by book. I'm Mary. I'm Allison. And I'm Leah. Oh. Oh. You know, we're so honored to have one of our fave guests returning to us. Allison, do you want to introduce one of our fave people? I'd love to. So if you've been with us for a minute, uh, this is a repeat guest. We first met Leah back on episode 59 when we did a review of the Molly's World book and we talked a bit about historical memory. And we were absolutely thrilled when people suggested that we invite Leah, who is a Holocaust history teacher, back to talk to us about Rebecca Rubin. Yes, I'm so excited to be back. Um, Rebecca came out when I was like 14 so I remember her coming out really well and I just reread all of the books and it's they're surprisingly good their illustrations are beautiful it's very fun I think something we just have to talk about right away because the people have demanded it we need you to talk about some of her merch being a bagel or some of her illustrations her (laughs) formative ones being a bagel and a pickle respectively Yes. So there were a few things that were interesting about her school lunch in particular. So her school lunch involves um, a pickle, a bagel, and a rogelach. So rogelach are these little delicious cookies that take many hours to make. Pickles are interesting in this because during the progressive era, pickles were kind of one of the main things that were targeted by like the, you know, progressive era Samanthas as like, oh, we can't have all of the Jewish children bringing pickles into school as their school lunch. And this was one of the foods that was specifically targeted in New York by school lunch programs early on. Hmm. And why was that targeted? They were seen as like too flavorful. They're often like, they were seen as too ethnic, essentially. The pickles that Jewish kids were bringing were different from the like American pickles, which are often kind of sweeter, whereas you get your kosher dills and they're very, very garlicky and very often spicy in a lot of a lot of recipes. And it was also just like it wasn't, you know, what American children were meant to be bringing for lunch. So the pickles are super accurate as to like, yes, she would have been heading to school with pickles. And often actually they didn't bring their lunches, but there were pickle vendors all over the Lower East Side. There was a big kind of push cart culture in the Lower East Side at this time. And so you would buy your school lunch potentially from a pickle vendor, which we see in the All of a Kind family books, those kind of push carts. Uh, But then the bagel... It's so out of out of nowhere because it's like the whitest bagel with like American cheese. Uh oh. And I was ne- let's just say that as a Jewish child in the early two thousands, this was never a lunch I was packing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like probably the most common that I would get would be either an everything bagel or a pumpernickel bagel. My favorite was pumpernickel, either just with cream cheese or with like tuna fish. And I was actually like, this was one of the things that like kids picked out of my lunches. Oh, this is weird because pumpernickel bagels were my favorite and they're a very dark kind of almost black bread. Mm -hmm. 
and then the tuna fish was well smelly um you know it's always like a brave moment in school when you bring tuna i'm not someone who eats tuna but i always admire people who were like i'm doing this like i am eating my tuna sandwich deal with it it's happening my sister was even more kind of hardcore because she liked tuna fish with ketchup <laughs> yeah it was a as a small child listen so that's a lot um but yeah I've never in my 26 years I have never had a like plain bagel with cheddar cheese (laughs) so it's just like like for a while I thought it was like oh is that like a pink slice of lox it's like no it's (laughs) oh yeah yellow cheese (laughs) (laughs) just very kind of out of left field of like here we're gonna do the pickles we're gonna do the jewish cookies and out of left field we're gonna throw in the most goyish bagel you've ever seen (laughs) wow the only way you can make it worse is if you put bacon on it whoa yeah good point good point wow i mean how do you think that happened i don't know i legitimately do not know (laughs) because it is kind of like the quintessential bagel with like lox and cream cheese so i'm imagining that like someone was like well we can make a bagel with lox and cream cheese then people were like no people won't know what that is which i don't think is true like most i mean that's not an uncommon food in general america i don't think is it i don't think so i i think people know what bagels and lox are I don't think I would have known, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I don't know, because, like, where both of the cities that I grew up in had, like, a bagelry, but they didn't necessarily, I mean, they had, like, bagel and lox, and that was always what we bought, but I don't know if that was what everyone else was buying. Hmm. So when you're younger, and, you know, we're talking younger, Leah is sitting down to read the Rebecca books for the first time, right? You're so excited. They've just come out. Were you looking at that time for things in the books that felt familiar? Like, were you were you actively doing that? Or is that something that's kind of happened for you later? I was definitely looking for it. I was 14 when they came out. So I was a little bit past when I was actively playing with my dolls, but a little before I was like, oh, this is cool again. Mm-hmm. I definitely, I read all of the books when they came out and... I remember being really excited when there were like stuff like Shabbat candles and Herminara and like little things that are like kind of less well known because most people who know anything about Judaism will know like what a menorah is. But like in the first book, they have like what's called a pushka, which is like a little, it's also called a tzedakah box, which is a charity box. And like when I was a kid, I had my allowance was broken into I had three boxes on my dresser and I had one for saving, one for spending and then a sadaka box. And it's like a big part of like your Jewish education. Like when I was teaching at a Jewish preschool, they started every day with like teaching them to put like a penny in the sadaka box. Um, and was singing like a cute little song about giving charity. And that's like something that would not be visible necessarily in the main, in like the mainstream is not like the most common thing that people know about Judaism. And like her Shabbat candles were just gorgeous. And just generally it was like, oh, this is my family's story in a lot of ways, which was very meaningful because this was about when my family was coming to the U.S., 
was this period of time. Hmm. I was going to ask, like, on two levels. One, did you see your own family history in these books? And also, did you see your relatives reacting to the launch of Rebecca in similar ways? I definitely, especially my mom, because my mom's name is Rebecca. Love that. Yeah. So she was just like, she was surprisingly excited because my mom wasn't like a particularly big doll person. She was like very happy with like me and my sister being into dolls, but she wasn't like a big doll person and she didn't she didn't play with dolls all that much as a kid. She had dolls, of course, because everyone did, but it wasn't like a big thing for her. And I actually asked her a few questions before recording this and I was like asking you know, what was it like when these books came out? And it was, for her, she was kind of remembering from her own childhood, she was born in the mid 60s, that like she never would have played a doll being Jewish because it wasn't like a desirable thing. And her family was still very much kind of trying to assimilate Hmm. at that time. And our family has kind of moved away from that as kind of time's gone on. And my grandmother as well, she had a doll that when she was little and she was born in the early 30s, but she didn't see herself like reflected back in that doll particularly. Like I think it probably had like blonde curls or something. And, you know, dolls didn't have Jewish backstories and you wouldn't have necessarily put one on them. Just kind of, it was something that was hard so you don't, put your imagination into something that was hard. And I remember even though both my sister and I were like kind of slightly at that age where we were still, we still had our American Girl dolls and we still really liked them, but we weren't actively playing with them as much. Uh, but my mom was still like, we have to get the Rebecca books. We ha- we absolutely have to read the Rebecca books together. And we were also kind of, you know, we were reading independently by that point. So we weren't doing as much read aloud. And I remember us reading them together. And that was like a big thing. of like, no, we read all of the other ones together when you were like five and six. We have to read these together. And she she bought this just beautiful box set. And we do not have any other box sets of American Girl books. All of our other American Girl books were either the like meat book that you got with a doll i think that's how we got like meat kit and meet kirsten and my sister had molly but the rest of them were all like you know not matching sets secondhand from thrift stores but we bought the box set of the rebecca books hmm. that was definitely i think it definitely showed just how important it was for my mom she was like no we're getting this we're, we're getting this we're reading this i'm like super excited about having a doll who as my name even right and then of course it was very much her family's her mom's side of the family's story i'm named after my great aunt who was the first in the family to come to the u.s in i think about 1906 um and she was an adult at the time a young adult but an adult and she came through Ellis Island, she stays and then went to Chicago. Um, And that's actually where our family settled. My grandmother was born in a very Jewish neighborhood in Chicago. And my grandmother was also raised by her aunt because her mother died when she was about a year old. Um, So she was raised by her aunt and her father. And her father had had come a few years later, I think actually during the First World War. And my aunt, my great aunt who I was named for, her kind of story was she came into the US and she hadn't eaten for the entire time on the boat, which was about two weeks. Oh, wow. And she got a nickel and bought 
a, her skirt full of apples and she ate apples for the whole time she was in New York and the train ride to Chicago. Wow. And my mother always remembered her voice really vividly when she was telling that story and she would do kind of her Yiddish accent. She had a very, very thick Yiddish accent for her whole life. Um, and she'd say, I bought apples. I bought apples. <laughs> That's such a, I love those kind of anecdotes or family history moments that have such rich detail. And, you know, that I, you can imagine how those will be passed down through your family and have been so far. And it really resonates with kind of the specificity of the books. And you're, you're mentioning Yiddish. And I'm just wondering, you know, we've had listeners write in about this. Like, it's such a strong through line in the book. And for those not familiar, can you talk about, like, kind of what is Yiddish as a language, like the use of it in the books and so on? Yeah, so Yiddish is, sometimes it's actually described as a Creole, which is a pretty decent description of it because it is very much an amalgamation language. It's about... 1200 years old it dates back to central europe around we see first written records of it in about 800 ce it is kind of taking old high german grammar writing it with hebrew letters but not quite how hebrew is written with hebrew letters Mm -hmm. and then it has a great deal of loan words and some loan grammar from various slavic languages so ukrainian russian Polish. And then it also has a decent amount of loan words and loan grammar from Hebrew and Aramaic, which are kind of the primary biblical biblical languages. So the ancient language of Jews were in kind of prior to the diaspora in ancient Israel was Hebrew and then also Aramaic and some other languages. And today in modern Israel, the language is modern Hebrew, which is similar, but not quite the same. Like, you know, it has words Hmm. for telephone. Um, And it was very deliberately created in the late 19th century as a speakable language. However, particularly Jewish men had maintained at least reading comprehension in Hebrew for the entirety of diasporic history. So Yiddish is written with those Hebrew characters. Hmm. Hebrew is not written with vowels. It uses kind of outside of the letters vowels. Yiddish is written with the vowels in it. And you can often kind of say that like all of the grammar is essentially German. And then all of the important words are either Hebrew or Slavic. Interesting. So there are a lot of stories, for example, during the Holocaust where Yiddish speaking Jews would be able to somewhat comprehend a decent amount of German, but it wasn't, it didn't work the other way around because you'd have the grammar, but not the, but not the vocabulary. And there was very much a hierarchy in particularly in Auschwitz of there were a lot of particularly Greek Jews who were transported to Auschwitz and they were seen almost as linguistically dangerous. Hmm. They didn't speak Yiddish. And so they didn't understand any German, so they couldn't follow orders. Hmm. And yeah, so Yiddish was very much the lingua franca of all Jews in Pale of Settlement, which is the area of the Russian Empire where Jews were allowed to live. It originates in what's now Germany and Austria, um, but it very quickly becomes the primary language in modern Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, etc. At its height 
in the late 1930s, there are about 11 million Yiddish speakers. In the US, we often kind of, our main exposure to the Holocaust is from actually quite a Western European lens. So we hear stories from people like Anna Frank, who was a German and Dutch speaker. However, the vast majority, about 80% of Holocaust victims were Yiddish speakers. And those who were murdered were actually about half of the Yiddish speakers alive at the time, which is a pretty sobering statistic. Yeah. Well, I was just going to pivot and ask, like, in the context of New York with the immigrant community there, is Yiddish, is Yiddish taking on a new importance to distinguish Jewish immigrants from, one, from other immigrant populations? Is it a, like allowing code switching to happen? And there's the scenes in schools where Anna is a new student is reverting to Yiddish or struggling to obviously learn a brand new language. It's definitely, you see a lot of code switching. You see a lot of the slang that is coming up at this time. You see a lot of Yiddish in slang. So things like a schmuck, <laughs> a schmuck it, uh, that comes from um, the Yiddish word schmeckel, which is penis. Wow. Yeah. Let's see. A nosh is from a kind of Yinglish, anglicized word for like a snack. Kvetch is a Yiddish word, just straight up. And you see very much a kind of creation of kind of a Yinglish. One of the things you often see in photographs of the Lower East Side is English words written in Yiddish. So mm. using the Hebrew characters to write in Eng English words. So like you'll find photographs of like a grocery store that says chicken market mm. in Yiddish characters, but that is not the Yiddish word for chicken market. <laughs> There's Aaron Zeitlin was a Yiddish writer in the mid 20th century. And he wrote um, a short piece called monologue of plainem Yiddish, monologue in plain Yiddish. And it really shows there's a good recording of it on youtube and it really shows this kind of like americanization of yiddish and you definitely see it become it is very much the main language spoken by jewish immigrants in new york city and you start to see kind of a mixture with english you see some english speakers starting to pick up kind of Yiddish slang words, and you start to see kind of some almost Yiddish popular culture. So for example, the there was a song that was really popular in the late 1930s and early 1940s called By Mir Bistu Shane, which is a Yiddish song, To Me You Are Beautiful. Hmm. And there are kind of three main immigrant groups in the Lower East Side. There's a lot of Jewish immigrants, there are a lot of Italian immigrants, and then geographically, the Lower East Side borders Chinatown. And so this is actually why you get the stereotype of Jews eating Chinese food on Christmas, <laughs> um, <laughs> is kind of Jews going over into, particularly Jews of Rebecca's generation, going over into Chinatown, and you see some kind of language exchange there as well. And you also start to see a fair few marriages. So like there are Today, there are a lot of Asian American Ashkenazi Jews, hmm. and it continues to be kind of the lingua franca for a couple decades. By the 1950s, it's really starting to be 
assimilated and really only older people are speaking Yiddish. Today, the main, today, New York is actually still one of the only places that you can go to like hear Yiddish spoken. Um, but it's much more, much smaller, much more kind of contained to specific neighborhoods. So today, kind of there are three main groups of people who continue to speak Yiddish. There are obviously older people who this was their first language or first or second language. There are academics like me who want to learn it for various reasons. And then there are different groups of Hasidic and Orthodox Jews who continue to speak Yiddish as a first or second language. That mainly exists in a few neighborhoods in Brooklyn, primarily Williamsburg and Borough Park. And like these are the only places where you could like go to order food in Yiddish. There are also some similar neighborhoods in Israel, but even within Orthodox communities, Hebrew is more common than Yiddish in a lot of communities. It's really kind of a few very specific sects that still speak Yiddish as their primary language. And it's the probably the biggest is the Satmar Hasidim, who come from the area of Satumare in, I believe it's today, it's Romania. And even in their Yiddish, you see a lot of English loan words. And that's kind of coming from that immigrant background of we're keeping the Yiddish language because it's a way of keeping the culture alive. But we're, you know, we have the word for cell phone, we have the word for computer, we have the word for, you know, all of these different things that we kind of first encountered in the United States. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of your very basic overview of Yiddish. Yiddish is a wonderful language. It's I love hearing it spoken. Yiddish is a Sprach. It's really it was really important to my grandmother as well. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes brought right to your doorstep. So what does that mean for autumn? Fall is a great time to get some delicious sweets and to get everyone involved with a HelloFresh limited edition kid-friendly baking kit. HelloFresh is not just for dinners. You can shop HelloFresh Market and find breakfast, snacks, and even desserts. So really, whatever you are looking for, HelloFresh has something, and you can even explore the HelloFresh app. Trust me, if I can use HelloFresh and make meals with all those pre-portioned ingredients, you can too. So whether you're looking for the family-friendly or the fit and wholesome or special veggie recipes, HelloFresh has something that you can save time and money with. We want you to go to HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirl16 and use our code AmericanGirl16 to get 16 free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash AmericanGirl16 and use that code AmericanGirl16. Yeah, I think you had written to us a little bit about, you know, the grandparent characters. And I'll just say I received some uh, solid feedback from listener Hannah that I say the word um, B-U-B-B-E totally wrong and that I said it like booby incorrectly. It's bubby. (laughs) Which which is truthfully what I thought was coming out of my mouth. And she said, no, you kept saying booby. And that's not what I hear when I say it, but I, I, Hannah is like an early, early listener and left us a voice memo and said, this is what I think you're trying to say. 
And what you ought to be saying is this. And we had such a long conversation about that. It would be great if you could talk a little bit about sort of, you know, the role of the grandparents in the book. And I think this being maybe one of the series that has the strongest true, like, multi and intergenerational set of stories, right? Like Max being a cousin who's really more of like an uncle, having grandparents, sort of like what you see in the attempts by, you know, Jacqueline Dunbar Green to put all those characters together. I, I absolutely love it. It's certainly very historically accurate. The vast majority of families were multi-generational, especially in the Lower East Side. Um, one thing I find interesting is that her grandmother is Bubby, but her grandfather is not Zadie. So Zadie is the Yiddish word for grandfather. And there's kind of some almost like disconnect there because he is in the books he is very much drawn as a religious man Hmm. he is one of her main like he is one of the main people that she goes to with religious questions and he's also visually kind of almost contrasted with max and also with her father Hmm. in terms of how the yiddish would be word would be from how like observant he is And so he is, I believe it's in Candlelight for Rebecca. Yeah, it is. On page 31 in Candlelight for Rebecca, we've got this beautiful, just warm illustration of her sitting with her grandfather, and she's got her book, and he's got his Yiddish newspaper. And so he is not during service, not during any religious services, just during his everyday life. He's wearing a yarmulke. Um, He's wearing kind of very traditional black and white clothing, which is the clothing you'll see most Orthodox and Hasidic men continuing to wear today. And also importantly, he is wearing a full beard. He's cut it shorter, but he is still wearing a full beard. And whereas you see her father and Max have both, Max is, I believe is completely clean shaven. And her father just has a very, a very stylish, you know, early 1910s mustache. And this was a big deal. This was seen as a very visible sign of assimilation to have cut your beard. Hmm. Um, there's a saying in Yiddish, a yid on a bot is a is a via bot on a yid. So a, a Jew without a beard is better than a beard without a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> That's an, another interesting thing about Yiddish. Yiddish literally means Jewish. A yid, which becomes a slur in English and in other languages, literally means a Jew, but it also essentially means a person. So a, a typical Yiddish greeting would be Vos Yid, like, how are you doing? And so her grandfather is wearing a beard, which is in traditional Jewish law, there are a lot of kind of very gendered visual markers, which of course have changed over time, um, particularly in the 20th, 20th and 21st centuries. But at this time, um, having cut your beard, and especially like Max being completely clean shaven, that was the visual representation of you have completely assimilated. There's the Torah commandment that says you should not shave the sides of your head or the what are called side locks. So if you're in a neighborhood that has a big Hasidic population, you'll see men and boys with long hair at the sides of their, like at the sideburns, which are called payas. 
um, and sometimes they're curled. And all you know, men past the age of puberty will have a full beard. And so very much visually represented as an observant Jew. And similarly, Bubby is very much shown as an observant Jew kind of through her actions. And especially in her kind of Jewish housekeeping, she's really the character that you meet a lot of food through, which is very accurate to a lot of Jewish families. Like in Candlelight for Rebecca, she's the one who's making the matzo ball soup. She's the one who's like making the latkes. She's the one who's, you know, illustrated in the kitchen um, a lot of the time as well. And she is the kind of visual representations of kind of observance are a little bit more subtle often in women. Traditionally, married women will cover their hair, but this is not as kind of universal as like men wearing a beard. And it's also not necessarily as visual because a lot of women wear wigs. And yeah, so you see the grandmother in the role of the like quintessential Bubby, which I absolutely love. The other thing I was going to talk about about Grandpa, or I'm going, I am going to call him Zadie because I just can't see him being Grandpa. Makes sense. Yeah, is in the that illustration. He is seen reading a very specific newspaper. It is Der Vorwärts, which is still published today, both in English and Yiddish. It's called the Jewish Daily Forward in English. And it is, by 1914, it is the biggest Jewish newspaper in New York, certainly the biggest Yiddish newspaper. It is also very openly a socialist newspaper, Hmm. which is really cool. Like to the point where they have the forward building has like a bust of Marx. (laughs) Whoa. Now luxury apartments. (laughs) Uh... They have to walk past the bust of Marx to go into their luxury apartments. That's wild. It's it's great. It's fantastic. It's a it's an absolutely perfect little like Easter egg because it's got um, the illustration has the big Yiddish letters spelling out forwards, but it also has pretty small. It has English written forward. So all of the people of my mother's generation um, and certainly my grandmother's generation would have been oh I remember that paper. My my grandmother. Every day, her father gave her a nickel to buy him Der Vorwärts. Wow. And of course, it's also definitely saying something about grandpa's politics, because there are religious papers at this time. There are the Morgan Journal and several others. There's something like 150 Yiddish publications in New York at this time, and something like six or seven daily newspapers. So he has options. He has, like, a ton of options, and he's picked the socialist paper, like, the big socialist paper, which I kind of, it's kind of perfect, because then when, in Changes for Rebecca, when she's becoming pretty politically active, the family's fine with it, pretty much. It's like, well, it's dangerous, but we're not having any problems with the politics of the strikers or anything, which would make sense if Grandpa is reading the foreword. (laughs) Yeah, I was curious how you read the politics of the family, and do you see any kind of, like, generational difference between them? I definitely see the parents, who are kind of the most precarious generation. They're kind of the generation that has to do the assimilating. I see them being a little more kind of 
anxious politically almost, whereas Rebecca, who is firmly, she's born in the U.S., she is an American, it feels more okay for her to be politically active, which I think makes a lot of sense. I'm going to pull out changes for Rebecca just to remind myself. I really loved how they did changes for Rebecca. It's one of the best books in the whole series and potentially of American Girl books. Yeah, we really loved it too. Maybe this is a good opportunity to kind of bring in some reading and some knowledge that you have on a kind of related event of sort of like women taking part in protests. Would you like to drop some knowledge on us about the Great Kosher Meat War of 1902? Yes. So one of the things that I was looking at when I was looking at the at changes for Rebecca was how there were certain ways where it was more socially acceptable for like socially acceptable Jewish women to be participating actively in violent politics. So things like striking and rioting than it was necessarily for women in other cultures. There are some really old kind of predecessors for this. So in the Hanukkah story, one part of the Hanukkah story that is not often told is where Yehudit gets a Greek general very drunk and seduces him in order to chop off his head and present his head to his soldiers. Whoa. Right? Love that. <laughs> Love that. And then, of course, there's the story of Queen Esther, which is the Purim story, which definitely would be Rebecca's favorite holiday because of the Purim spiel. There's there's traditionally Purim plays in the level of like like a like a Christmas pageant. Like these are very funny and cutesy. But she would have been like hardcore micromanaging like a Purim <laughs> spiel. Um, <laughs> I can totally see that. Um, but one thing you see in the Lower East Side is women who are seen as doing womanhood correctly. So people like married housewives also participating in rioting. And one of the first times you see this is my one of my favorite historical events, which is the 1902 kosher meat riots. Yes. You were like pounding your fist on the table as you said that. Like some people are like, my favorite event is the Super Bowl. Like, is this your Super Bowl? Like, this is my punk? Super Bowl. <laughs> so backstory. So we've got the progressive era. We've got pre first President Roosevelt. We've got the Chicago meat industry, which is an absolute disaster. We've got, you know, Upton St. Clair and the jungle coming out and it's all like cow blood and guts everywhere and it's all it's wow. all a big thing and we're right in the middle of trying to break the robber barons <laughs> of the meat industry <laughs> so kosher meat is inherently more expensive it's also a lot harder to find Lower East Side in New York would have been super easy to find but it was more expensive it was about let me see I have it written down it was 12 cents prior to the strike for um, a pound of kosher beef, which was, I can't remember exactly how much things like pork were, but it was significantly more. I found, I'm going to bring up the book because it is phenomenal. You know how most academic books are a little dry? Sure. This one is not. The author has included a dramatis persona <laughs> in his in his academic book on the kosher meat riots. It's called oh The God. Kosher Meat War by Scott D. Seligman. And it is phenomenal. 
it, it is a fantastic book. It brings together President Roosevelt, robber barons, oil barons, and the impoverished housewives of the Lower East Side in this wonderful, ridiculous story. So he does go into a lot of depth into like the cost of things. So rent typically costs about $10 a month. A well-paid man typically was bringing home about $2 a day, of which about 30 cents a day was going to rent. And about... 50 to 60 cents was going to food by far the most kind of expensive per pound item was beef because to make kosher beef you have to go through not only the kosher slaughtering process which means you have to have a healthy animal which as upton sinclair made very clear was not necessarily true in the rest of the meat industry at the time the animal cannot have any blemishes so it can't have any like skin lesions or anything Mm -hmm. it has to be slaughtered with a trained shoichet which is a kosher slaughterer it has to go through a process of salting and draining the blood so kosher salt is called kosher salt not because it is kosher but because it is used for koshering which is Mm. making meat kosher because that kind of big grain salt just to be graphic draws out the blood from an animal and blood is not considered kosher got it And so you've got kind of the kosher meat version of the kosher meat robber barons, and the industry is very tightly controlled by, I believe it was called the Kosher Meat Trust, which meant that they could essentially kind of change prices how they wanted to. And to be fair (laughs) to the guys in the Kosher Meat Trust, at the time, a lot of other complicated stuff was going on in the beef industry that meant they were having to pay a lot more for their beef. But pretty much overnight at Passover, kosher meat jumps from 12 cents per pound to 18 cents per pound, and everything goes bananas. So the laws of Passover mean, one, it is a holiday, so you're do- you're throwing your whole budget at you know, getting the nice fancy food for your family. Having meat is very traditional. One, it's one of the few things that is kosher for Passover because you're not allowed to eat any leavened. Oh, right. And for Ashkenazi Jews, this goes pretty hardcore. So not only are you not allowed leavened bread, fine. You're not allowed any other grain or grain-like thing, (laughs) which... It, which can ferment and rise. This includes, for Ashkenazi Jews, things like corn and rice. Sephardic Jews are like, no, that makes no sense. We eat corn and rice on Passover. What are you doing? Additionally, a smaller subject subsection of Ashkenazi Jews also hold by um, a tradition called gabraks, which means broken. So you don't break up matzah and get it wet because then the matzah could ferment. So being a housewife in the early 1900s in the Lower East Side with, you know, your average probably is five or six children. Many were having many more, plus your extended family. You are pulling your hair out at this point. Like we're like today you pull your hair out at Passover. Back then they were absolutely completely stressed. Additionally, 
Passover of, of 1902 starts at a really inconvenient time because at the time there were blue laws in effect so that you weren't allowed to do like grocery shop, like grocery stores weren't allowed to be open on Sundays mm-hmm. in much of New York. And this year, I believe Passover was starting on a Monday, which meant that you couldn't buy stuff for two days before. And the the women of the Lower East Side were all were already getting so antsy that the police commissioner told the New York City Police Department to not like for like a day, don't enforce this law because we will have a riot on our hands because mm-hmm. you can't buy on Saturday because Shabbat, which means if you've got something like meat, you can't buy meat because it's perishable and none of you have ice boxes. Right. Um, so when you have this huge spike in price, the women lose it. They are so pissed off. And these are people who know how to organize. The union movement is already getting started, especially in the you know garment industry in the Lower East Side. You, you've got these women who are already kind of on their like kind of last straw and it jumps up six cents a pound and pretty immediately the women organize into both into unions or kind of opposing trusts so the um oh what was it It was a great name the um the the ladies anti-beef trust (laughs) (laughs) we are women and we are (laughs) anti-beef which can I just say that sounds like a lesbian bar? <laughs> I was thinking about that Wendy's ad from like the 80s. That's like that old lady who's like, where's the beef? I mean, mm-hmm. she could probably be part of the anti-beef league too. Yeah. As any good doll owner knows or anyone that has hair that they take care of knows, there are so many different things from curling and straightening to random haircuts and hairspray that can do damage to your hair. If you are like me and you want longer, thicker hair, and there might be some things that have done some damage to your hair over the years, Vegamore is something that you definitely want to give a try. With Vegamore, you can get healthy, beautiful looking hair without using harmful chemicals. All of their products are cruelty-free and never contain parabens or hormones. Having Vegamore is something that I actually really love in my shower. I look forward to how good it smells and what it actually does for my hair. With Vegamore, you can use a shampoo, a conditioner. Those can be real game changers. And there is also a grow revitalizing shampoo and conditioner kit. This is something that I absolutely adore using and it's part of my daily routine. With Vegamore, there is no risk to try because they have a 90-day money-back guarantee. With 91% of customers saying that they saw visibly thicker hair in just three months, you will not want to run out. Don't let damage of the past hold your hair back. Go to vegamore.com slash americangirlspod and use our code to get 20% off. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash American Girls Pod. And that code is American Girls Pod. Thank you, Vegamore, for sponsoring our show. So the woman who initiates the strike is a woman named Sarah Zimmerman Edelson, um, who was born in 1852, and she is an immigrant, and she is a religious woman. 
he points out that she keeps a strictly kosher home and she is also visibly religious. She dresses according to Talmudic modesty and outside of the house she wears a shaitel, which is a wig, so she covers her hair outside the house. She went to a specific mikvah at an Orthodox synagogue, which is a mikvah is a ritual bath, which married Jewish women um, go to at certain points in their menstrual cycle every month. And so she was born, oh, I should also mention, she is like a force to be reckoned with. He describes her as medium height, broad shouldered, and like big. So this is like an imposing woman. She's a natural leader. She was born in the Pale of Settlements and was among the first um, Eastern European Jews to come to New York. She came very early in, in 1868. Most Jewish immigrants were not coming until after 1881. She married a, a man named Joel, um, and she had, by 1900, she had given birth to six children, but had only four who survived to adulthood. Three of her children were already grown by 1902, and she earned um, additional income for the household working as a shadrin, which is a matchmaker. So I'm sure you are familiar with the song from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Yes. This is an actual job in the Jewish world. (laughs) Love that. Yeah. So when she takes it to the streets with the other women, like what happens? She encourages the other women to engage in stuff like throwing bricks at butchers that continue to be open after she's told them to close. Whoa. She encourages women to go into the butchers and harass any other women who are buying meat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and this goes on for quite a while (laughs) i believe about a month before the the cost is finally lowered back down (laughs) because the women of the lower east side have just out and out said no we're not paying that much for kosher meat and it it came to the point where there were you know, the New York City Police Department became involved. A lot of women were beat up and assaulted. There were even essentially strike breakers. Um, on one of the kind of biggest days of the rioting, over a hundred women were arrested. The boycott spread to the Bronx and to Harlem. So other Jewish women in other neighborhoods started organizing. And importantly about these women, these were not, you know, the young women who were working in sweatshops who were, you know, tending to be involved with like strikes on garment factories. These were mostly middle-aged like housewives. The average age of the strikers was 39. Do you think Rebecca's mother would have been part of this strike? I can actually kind of more see her grandmother, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mother seems kind of like a little reserved, but I can see Bubby taking to the streets. I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, this is another great one. So there's one of the main things you would be buying before is the Shabbat stew, which is called chillant. And Sarah encourages the boycott leaders to go around to other women's houses and check their chillant pots to make sure they're not cooking meat. Wow. 
I mean, talk about like stew valence. Is that what we're calling that? Stew valence, yes. Oh my God. They later formed the Allied Conference for Cheap Kosher Meat. And of course, of course, you know, every time there's a big hike in kosher meat prices, this happens again. And who's at the head of it in the 1930s but Clara Lublick? <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, she led the boycott in 1935. I mean, there are so many interesting things about this story. It's, But one of the main things I find interesting about it is that it is women striking based on their role as housewives and domestic laborers of basically being like we are already working so damn hard Mm -hmm. in horrifying conditions most of them are also like working for a a wage it is very difficult for married jewish women to have say a factory job but a lot of them are working as shatrans a lot of them are working as um laundry women a lot of them are working in piecework, so so sewing works that they can do at home, as well as, of course, raising and managing families. And they create this like entire informal network that quickly becomes very formalized and use all of the tactics of your traditional labor union from, you know, striking to boycotting to breaking up the scabs who would go into the kosher butchers and buy meat. (laughs) And they, you know, then it was their daughters a few years later who were participating in the uprising of the 20,000 and in the, you know, continued labor uprisings that we see in Changes for Rebecca. Because most of the women participating in these were young because those were the women who were working in factories. Hmm. But they had seen their mothers throwing bricks. (laughs) <laughs> That's really interesting because it kind of seems like in Changes for Rebecca, which I agree with you, is one of my favorite all-time American Girl books. Alice and I, I think, said that on that episode. But, you know, there's like like lacking in that book is kind of that link back to maybe like Bubby's generation or like a consciousness of like, we learned this from you. Like Rebecca kind of sitting with Bubby and being like, I got knocked off the speaking post and this and that. And like her, Bubby being like, yeah, I also like, once threw a brick at a butcher like I get it you know like I'm proud of you totally that would have been great (laughs) and I could totally see Bubby participating in this yeah totally yeah we'll definitely have to have our listeners check out that book it sounds like I know it's lit you up inside and certainly like your account of it has done the same for us um (laughs) uh Allison do we want to hit Leah with some rapid fire questions from our listeners Yeah, and we're so lucky that we're going to be chatting with some folks who've worked on interpretation at the Tenement Museum. So we're going to kind of hear. Oh my gosh, I absolutely adore the Tenement Museum. Us too. And so we're kind of excited to like, you know, get some information on Rebecca's world from different Mm -hmm. angles. But I think an awesome maybe kind of wrap up question is, what do you think Rebecca might be into if she were alive today? Not not a very elderly Rebecca, but if we were able to meet a Rebecca approximately our age living right now, you might be interested in watching, reading, listening to. So our age? or like a 14-year-old right now or like a 10-year-old right now? Let's make her our age just for the sake of fun. 
Okay, so I'm thinking she's like really in to like Jewish feminism, obviously. My guess is she's like probably working with like, I don't know, like JQY, like uh, as Jewish queer youth, or um, maybe like, I don't know, she definitely like went on birthright and posted so many photos on her Instagram <laughs> with a cute Israeli soldier. Oh my God, um, love that. That's oh. definite. She has big opinions about um, the funny girl drama. What are those opinions? I think she is very angry that the actresses change. I think, I think. Okay, thank you. I think she's, I think she's, I think she's like, no, you made the incorrect choice. Primarily because she wanted to be hired. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) love that. I think that's probably true. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think she's probably into like, I don't know. I can see her maybe being part of like a reform synagogue and is like, really hyper managing the kids perm spiel like she's like no we have to have costumes and they can't be made of cardboard we have to have real costumes <laughs> we have to have like special effects i can i can see so her i ooh this is a deep cut her favorite jewish online content is the web show soon by you okay <laughs> which is which is a it was came out a few years ago um and it's like young modern orthodox millennials trying to make it and find love in new york city i think she was probably a member of a jewish sorority if we're honest (laughs) i think she is like really big on posting like jewish food to her instagram like every time she buys like a rugula from a, a cafe. She's like, I'm posting a photo of this. Obviously, she still wants to be an actress, but I think she also might want to be like an influencer. <laughs> um, she just gives me that vibe. And I think she'd also be super politically active. I think she would be probably um, marching with like Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in New York. I think she would probably be continuing to make sure she's like getting to speak at event at like protests partially because she has things to say and partially because she likes public speaking yeah so that's i think that's what i imagined for rebecca i think she would be absolutely killing it okay does she find the sex in the city reboot and just like that more cringy or the rehearsal with nathan fielder like which gives her more of a full Mm. a full body cringe probably the sex in the city because of its (laughs) unrealistic portrayals of transportation in new york city (laughs) okay okay i like that i think that's a great answer she's like no we all take the subway okay i like that that's very good so Leah, if people want to catch up with you and they want to kind of see what you're up to on the internet, mm-hmm. you have, um, I think the best Instagram story of anyone that I follow consistently. I learned something just about <laughs> oh, every you. single day and I try to read everything that you post. Where should people, or where would you like people to find you on the internet? I am at Peculiar Leah on Instagram and mostly just Instagram. And yeah, I am pretty active on instagram it's definitely the best way to to find me 
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. I mean, every time you drop by, I learn something new. Like, I'm still reeling from your, frankly, just repeating to me an accurate summary of the movie The Boy with Striped Pajamas last time around. And this time I'll be <laughs> thinking about, yes. So there has been a book that has come out since then of a man from a man who I want to be best friends with who coincidentally added me on LinkedIn. Oh, my God. Which was really cool. But so there is a scholar who works at Yad Vashem named, I think, Rich Brownstein, I think is his name. I need to check that. Um, But he has the dubious honor of having watched every Holocaust movie and writing a book about it. (laughs) Yeah, Rich Brownstein. He recently published a book called Holocaust Cinema, The Complete History. And he was also on a video on a YouTube channel that I watch um, where he did like Holocaust films best to worst. Wow. That sounds like an iconic span. Yes. Well, thank you for that hot tip. Now I can get even more educated and probably appalled by some of the things out there. But I so appreciate every time you stop by. Allison, where can people find you if they want to check in? Yeah, so they can find me at Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. And Mary, where should they find you? Best place to find me is on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123. And Leah, thank you again. This is always such a joy to learn from you. So thanks so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much for having me.